um, go ahead and take them out and turn with me to John chapter 15. So the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 15. And so what we've committed ourselves to do here at the Point Community Church, which is kind of our meat and potatoes is, we preach our way through a book of the Bible. So we have for ah, good grief, over a year, we've been in the book of John. And that sounds like a great idea, right? We're going to preach the book of the Bible. We're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, until it's Mother's Day and you're preaching on the persecution of the church, right? I was looking at it and go, what were we thinking? I guess we could have done a standalone, but like I said, we're committed to this and we believe in this. And also we're committed to getting through John. Not that we got anywhere better to get to, but still that's just kind of where we are. And so that's it. I think it's, what's the title of the sermon today? The world hates you, right? So it's kind of, here it is. You ready? Happy Mother's Day. God loves you. The world hates you. Love one another. Now go be the church. That's the sermon for today, right? Um, so anyway, let's look at John chapter 15. We're made it all the way through. We're going to do uh, verses 18 through verse number 27. Here is the, the inspired, infallible, beautiful word of God. And we believe that to it to be such. He says, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things will they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now that they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates my father also, for whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Thank you. You could be seated. So for those of you that haven't been tracking with us, here's where we are is we're in a section of the book of John that's called the upper room discourse. And so it's, it's um, Thursday, late, late Thursday night. And Jesus is huddled together with 11 disciples. There, was, there were 12. Now one, Judas Iscariot has left the room and now it's just Jesus pouring in to his last, his last words, his last earthly words before he will be crucified with his disciples. And so it's been, a, it's been a pretty solemn event anyway. I mean, Jesus understands the time and he's trying to prepare his disciples for such. And the theme up until then has been really the theme of love. Jesus has demonstrated his love for his disciples. He's washed their feet. He's told them in, all the way back in John 13 to love one another, worked our way through John 14. There's promises all throughout 13, 14, 15, 16. We see these promises of run true. We see the theme of love. And now all of a sudden we run into a, a new theme and the theme is um, that of hate. 
As Jesus is giving them a new promise, a a different promise, a a promise with a little bit of a different flavor to it, but nevertheless, it's still a promise, and it's the promise of opposition and persecution. Now, why is Jesus saying this to his disciples? And here is why. So that when persecution hits, so that whenever Christians become the most hated people on the planet, when that happens, they will not quit, but they will persevere and they will endure through it. That is why he's saying this to them. He, doesn't, he wants them to anticipate this coming. He wants them to anticipate this as a, a prophecy, a, a promise that will be fulfilled, the promise of persecution, the promise of opposition. Now, I don't know how you respond to op- opposition. This is a judgment-free zone, but let me tell you how, just to be honest, let me tell you how I, how I approach and how I, uh, how, to, how I tend to react to opposition. I quit. Like I know some of you don't have that quitter bone in you, but let me tell you, I've got it and it's a big, big time, right? Like as soon as things get tough, like I want to quit, I want to lay down and and you can make a list of things. It could be exercise. I remember even when I was younger, Luann and I decided, hey, we're gonna exercise and we're gonna run of an evening. So we went to work, we come back home that evening. Luann's like, hey, you gonna exercise? And I'm like, let's do it. And she goes, okay. And then the subdivision was right up here is where we lived. And the subdivision was made this huge loop around the subdivision, but then there was a road that cut down through the middle. So I think it's Shenandoah goes around and Appomattox comes down the middle. And so we say, okay, we're going to do two laps around Shenandoah. Okay. We tear out and I just tear out and I just tear out sprinting, right? That's the only way I knew how to run. That's how I run when I was a kid. I just take off sprinting. I make it all the way halfway around the loop. And then I just cut back down Appomattox. Now I left Luann in the dust, right? On that sprint. She's going, what are you doing? You need to pace yourself, pace yourself. I'm like, pace this girl, you know? And then I cut back down. And at the top of the hill, I'd already decided I was quitting, right? And it was like, I went back down. Luann makes the loop. She comes back around. I'm standing on the front porch drinking a Mountain Dew. She goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm done. I didn't exercise again for another like 10 years, right? It could be a hobby. I went out and I decided I was going to mountain bike. And so I went out and I bought a yard sale mountain bike and I went one time. And so, you know what that meant? Like I'm committed to it. And so then I had to go buy a better, bigger, nicer, more expensive mountain bike. I got a helmet from Walmart. That won't do. I got a nicer, bigger one. I got the backpack with the water thing in it and got the pants that are, got the pad in the back, right? So you, you understand all of that. And I went 10 times. And then one time I wrecked, cracked two ribs, never been back. All that stuff's still hanging in the garage. It's there. The endless supply of honeydew lists and projects around my house. I look at all of that and I know that within me, I have a tendency to quit. Now, some of you, you're, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going type people and there's no quit in you and there's no fight in you. And yet, like I think Jesus knew in that room that for some of his disciples, there was a tendency to quit. And we even see this after his crucifixion. We see it where Jesus finds his disciples when he returns, that there was some quit in them and possibly, just possibly, there's some quit in you. And so Jesus says this, Jesus prophesies this, Jesus tells them this so that they will anticipate the opposition and then they will persevere through it and under it. And here's how we were gonna break down this text. We'll look at just three simple things under three headings. The first one is who hates us? I'm just using biblical language. Who hates us? The second would be why they hate us. The third is then practically how do we persevere through that? Who is, who is it that hates us? Why do they hate us? And practically how do we persevere through it? First, who hates us? We'll look at what Jesus says. 
starting in that 18th verse. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you, his disciples, his Christians, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So who hates us? Who, hate, who, is, who is it that hates and opposes Christianity? Who hates and opposes Jesus? Well, simply it's what he says here. It's the world. It's the world. You've seen the, 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 the t-shirt that says University of Kentucky, UK versus the world, right? That's sometimes how, how we feel. In fact, one of, our, one of our own members, Josh Hicks, is in New York City this weekend. And I'm in a community group with Josh. And somehow in our community group, the discussion came up like, what do you wear when you go to New York City? And for those of you that know Josh, you'll, you'll get this. Josh just goes, uh, work boots, jeans, and my UK versus the world t-shirts, what I'm wearing to you in New York City, Right? And, some, and that's how we feel. And that's what Jesus is saying here on a ramped up level. It's the world is against us. When Jesus uses the word world, it isn't the word in the Greek is the word cosmos. Now the opposite of cosmos is chaos in the Greek. Cosmos means this. It means it is an ordered system. Chaos is a disordered system, a disordered reality, but the cosmos that he's speaking about here is a very ordered system, that the world is an ordered system. It's an ordered system, Jesus means, of evil. It's an ordered system of rebellion towards God. It's an ordered system that has fallen and continues to fall. It's fallen and it's falling, it's cursed, but yet it's an ordered system. It's an ordered system of unregenerate people that are being led by Satan. It's an ordered system that is under satanic control. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He calls Satan the God of this world. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, and you, all of us, were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And once you once walked, you were following the course of this world. You may not have realized it. You may have thought you were independent, doing your own thing, but you're not. You're following a pattern, an order of this world. It is the order of the cosmos of this world. And he goes on and he says this, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's an ordered system that is led and governed by Satan and his demons. And it manifests itself in a, in a pattern of thinking and in a pattern of living. The primary pattern is rebellion against God and rebellion against God's laws. And we as people, we as humans, we're participants in this, in this system. We're not... We're not passerbyers in it, but we're willing participants in this system. It's originated and instigated and perpetuated by Satan, but we are not helpless participants. We are willing participants. And we all feel the effects of this in our own heart. We all feel the cosmos in our, in, in our, own, in our own souls, do we not? It's called the flesh. Believe me, as we work through this sermon, many of you are gonna feel that. Many of you, this is how it comes up for most of us is we bristle under God's law. We bristle up. We, I don't wanna do that. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. Whenever we preach God's law to us, when it comes against us, it causes us to bristle. And that's the way many of us live our lives. And what is that in us that's doing that? It's the fallen flesh. It's the cosmos in your own hearts. And what Jesus says as believers, we are being plucked up. We've been called out, chosen out of this cosmos, out of this world and into a new ordered system, namely the, the kingdom of God. 
this world, as Jesus refers to it, it is a system of evil that includes every religion and ideology that is anti-God, anti-Jesus, anti-scripture, anti-the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a system that opposes God. It opposes Christ. It opposes scripture. It opposes God's authority. It opposes the authority of God's word. It opposes God's good design and creation. It opposes God's law. It's a system that for the most part calls good evil and evil good. It's a system that rejects God's good design and God's good work. It's a system that hates the things of God and loves the things of this world. And we're living in that. Like we might not be living in a persecuted Christianity and under persecution like a hundred million of our brothers and sisters live under, but nevertheless, you and I, with an honest assessment of our culture that we're living in here in America, certainly we can understand that it's being amped up. The animosity towards Christians and the things of God, it's being increased, it's growing. And if you don't believe me, let's just think about this quickly. That in Genesis, Genesis opens up, it's the story of God being told and God opens up as the creator. And in Genesis one and two is the creation of all that God has created. Now, when you think about all that God's created, maybe you think of the star and the moon and the suns and the earth and, or the, yeah, the moon, well, all the moons, yeah. And the planets and the cosmos like that and all of the heavenlies and all that you could see with a microscope and a telescope. Maybe you think about those things and those are good things to think about. Certainly we can think about those. Well, let's take it on another level of things that God created in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God makes man in his image in the Imago Dei. And what that means is that every person is created in the image of God. They're created worthy of dignity and worthy of honor. Now think about that. Do we live in a world that sees that like that? If we understood that, there would be no need for avenues for women. If we understood that, there would be no racism. If we understood that, there would be no feelings of superiority against people, be no abortion, be none of these sorts of things. If we just understood that we are made in the Imago Dei, but we live in a world that opposes that, comes against that. In Genesis 1, 27, it says in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them that mankind is made by God's good design in two distinct separate genders, male and female. And today we live in a society and a culture that increasingly doesn't recognize that. Live in a society and a culture that now has gender confusion. Now we're gonna ask the child, which one are you? We're gonna have a gender reveal party whenever they feel like telling us what this, what what the gender of the child is. That's absurdity. That's insanity. Can we not as a people see that? What's happening? How can a culture feel that way? How can a culture say that? How can that be on our newsfeed? What's happening is the cosmos is reigning and ruling. And in America, it's being amped up and it's being turned against us. It goes on and he says in Genesis 1:28, for us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's a command from God in creation. That's the created command to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and to just subdue it. And there's a lot, there's a lot in that command. Implicit in that command is marriage and sex and childbearing and child raising and procreation, creating other little image bearers is in that. And all of that is under attack. 
Marriage as God has designed it to be as a heterosexual covenantal union, faithful commitment and joined together. Sex as a gift to be received by a husband and a wife in the confines of that covenant. Something that images that covenantal union of one flesh. And in this world, sex is idolized and worshiped and abused and misused. And children, multiple children, families in here that have three plus children, like follow those families around into Kroger and Walmart and see the looks and the stares and the questions and the comments that have been asked because we live in a, we live in a world that they no longer see a large family as a blessing from God. Multiple children is God's blessing. Meaningful work is implicit in that and rest, it's instituted in the garden before the fall. Our world knows very little of this. We only know the extremities. We vacillate in between laziness and workaholism. And also in this is God's law. God gives them one law, one law, one command. And what he's saying in that is, I am to be listened to and obeyed. As your creator, I have creator rights over my creation. And you are to listen to me and obey me and love me and worship me. And God's law is rejected and ignored and it continues to be. Genesis 1 ends with God making this declaration. He looks at all that he's made and God says this, and God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. It was very good in that it brought glory to him. And it was very good in that it, mankind flourished under this. God created all of this and gave it and said, mankind, you will flourish under this. It was for God's good and for our flourishing. And you and I, we live in a world, we live in a cosmos, in an ordered system that by and large, it opposes every one of those things. Everything that God has created and instituted, everything that God has called very good for him. We live in a culture that by and large says, no, 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 God, that's not good. Our way is better. No, God, this way is not good. Our way is better. Our way is better. Our way is better. But that's nothing new. We've enjoyed a respite in America under the banner of Christendom. Maybe it was God's grace. I think and by and large, it was God's grace. It has produced a very bloated church, very bloated and weak church. But nevertheless, it has been God's grace that we have not tasted persecution unto death, but is quickly coming to an end, I believe. I believe it's quickly coming to an end. And we live in a world that opposes God, opposes the people of God. But this is the storyline of the Bible. It's nothing new. It starts in Genesis 3 and goes all the way to Revelation 19. That's what we see happening all throughout Scripture. God's people are throughout Scripture. They are the most hated people of the world. And what we have starting in Revelation 19, from Revelation 19 to Revelation 22, is we see God coming and undoing all of that and birthing something even new. But for now, we live in John 15, verses 18 and following. Let me read it to you again so it's fresh in your minds. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they, they will do to you on account of my name, 
because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and they have hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Why do they hate us? Well, three quick reasons. Why do they, why does this world hate us? Well, quick, three quick reasons. Number one, because they hate God. Don't take it personally. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, if they hate you, don't take it personally. They hated me. And Jesus points out two continuity here. They hated me, Jesus, and they also hated the father. Look back at the Old Testament. Look at the saints. Look at the prophets. Look what happened. They hated them. And guess what? Here comes Jesus. They hate, they hate him as well. And listen, Listen, think about this for just a second on a practical level. If Jesus Christ was the only one who came and lived perfectly and loved perfectly and they rejected him, hated him, murdered him, nailed him to a cross, put him in a tomb, like we who love less and live less than perfect, why would we expect anything different from this world? That's what he's saying. Hey, don't take it personally. It's a satanic order that is against all of us. It's against me as, it's against the father. It's against the son. It's against the spirit. It's against his word. It's against his messengers, his ambassadors, his people, all right? So number one, why did they hate us? They hated us because they hated God. Number two, the world hates us because you and I, we are no longer part of this world. He says, well, you've been called out of this world. You're no longer part of that cosmos. You're now part of a new cosmos, the kingdom of God's cosmos. You've been called out and called to Christ, that you and I as Christians, that we are different. We are transformed. We've been saved. We've been called out of this world and called to Christ. We've been born again. We now belong to God, which begs the question, do you live differently? If that's true, then does your life, is it congruent to that declaration that your life looks differently? Your, the pattern of your thoughts are different than the cosmos' thoughts. The pattern of your life is different than the pattern of the cosmos' life. Do you live differently? Do you live in such a way that can only be explained by the resurrection of Jesus and the infilling of his Holy Spirit? Because I asked you, do you live differently? Most of you go like, yeah, I live differently. I try to be a good person, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Unbelievers, like the cosmos can be good people, right? My pagan neighbors that don't know God and don't worship God, they're good people. When they, most of them, when they mow their grass, they don't blow it on the street and they don't blow it in my yard. They blow it back into their yard. They're, most of them are good people like that. They try to rake their leaves and do good. They're good neighbors and good friends and they're moral. They don't abuse their children and they, pay taxes and they vote. Some of them don't vote maybe like how I want them to vote by their signage in the yard, but that's okay. They're still good people, right? They're moral people. So when Jesus says to you, do you live differently? You've been called out of the world. He's not just talking about being a good person, although that's implicit in that. We should be good people. Don't mean go act like an idiot. You know, don't be, that's not what he's saying, but there's more than that. In fact, you remember what I've been telling you and I'll take just a side note and maybe we'll end up there, right? I've been saying like 1 John is really like a, a sermon, an exposition on John 15, that if you were to look at 
John's little letter in 1 John, you'll see so many similarities of what Jesus, is, what Jesus has been saying and how John's writing this letter to his disciples, to his followers, to the church about. And he picks up on this. In fact, what he does in this is John, throughout 1 John, he gives three proofs of our salvation. He says, hey, don't just look at good works. Good works are implicit, but that's not it. But he says there's three assurances that you can have. If you see these three things in your life, you can be assured that you've been called out of the world and you belong to Jesus. And let me give you those three things. The first thing he talks about is your confession of faith. The first thing is you have to have a correct, a theologically, if you will, correct confession of faith. He says, what do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? That you and I were held together by faith. That's something subjective but it's our subjective faith in an objective truth. Something that is, it's not subjective to you to interpret truth because then you just make a God of your own making of a God of make-believe that's like a, you know, imaginary, uh, imaginary friend for adults, but that's not God. He's a God of the Bible. And so you must have a positive biblical confession. We believe in God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ is only begotten son our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was uh, crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, ascended onto high, raised to be Christ and Lord. It's that. That's something outside of us that we're called to believe in. That's biblical truth. And so is that your confession of who you believe in? Do you believe in the gospel alone, by faith alone, in Jesus alone? That, that goes against your flesh, that goes against your will, that goes against everything about you. You can't earn it, you can't do it. It's Jesus all for his glory. You come and you receive Jesus and you receive the beauty of the gospel with empty hands. You go, Jesus, I, I, I don't have anything. That's exactly the way I want you, just come. Find forgiveness in me. It goes against our pride and our works as we fall on Jesus and him alone. That's a confession. That's the first mark. The second mark is obedience. Do you obey the Lord? Do you follow his commands in your life? When you open up God's word and you read about his commands, especially implicit commands in the New Testament, and God says, don't do this. Do you not do that? God says, do this. Do you do that? Is that true of your life? What's the inclination of your heart towards those things? Are you a person who, who is a person of God's word and do you obey his word? And number three, John says, do you love others? Do you love one another? Especially do you love his church, his people? Is love the governing disposition of your life or do you, or is the governing disposition of your life still selfishness? Like when we're called to love like Christ loves, that means we love sacrificially. That means we love when we don't want to. That means we serve when we don't want to, when we don't feel like it. We don't use our feelings as the, as the guide, as the barometer, as the compass, as to, am I gonna serve them or not? Well, you know, I really don't want to, so I'm not going to. No, sacrificial love is we do it. We do it. We go, and then sometimes our heart doesn't match up. Sometimes our emotions doesn't match up, but we do it saying like, Lord, I, I'm so selfish and so broken. Help me not to be this way. Can me, by me going and serving this person today, by me giving, even though I don't feel like giving, would you break my selfish disposition and make me more like you? We do it anyways. That's what, that's what John says. Is, that congruent, is your life congruent to those things? Your confession of your faith, your obedience to him, your love for him. 
So first, the world hates us. It opposes us because it hated and opposed God. Number two, it hates us. It opposes us because we're no longer part of the world. We've been saved out of it. Your life should look different, should feel different, should think differently. Everything about you should be new. That's what Paul said. You've been made new, a new creation in Christ. You're growing and you're maturing in this, but you're, you're new, made new in him. Is that true of your life? And thirdly, and lastly, the world hates us because it hates the gospel. The world hates us because it opposes the proclamation of the gospel. Paul says that the gospel, the message that we preach, is a rock of offense. It's something that people trip over. And here's what I mean by that, because the gospel in and of itself just means the good news. And you go like, who would reject good news? Who would, who would say, hey, I reject and I hate good news? I mean, somebody can today, you can tell me some good news. I'm probably not gonna reject that, right? By going, hey, that's awesome. Let's hug. But that's not how the world approaches it because here's what the good news is. It's good news of how sinners like you and I can be saved through the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They oppose it because they don't wanna hear the sinner part. They oppose the preaching of the gospel because in order to preach the gospel, we must also preach the law. And the law comes and the law says that we're condemned before God, that no one's right. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good. No one seeks God. No one, no one, no one on their own initiative. That's the law. But then the gospel comes in and says, but Jesus, now come and believe that. But people don't wanna hear that they're sinners. People don't wanna hear about sin. They don't wanna talk about sin. Who are you to tell me what's sinful? I'm I'm nobody. I'm just reading the book. I'm just declaring to you the law of God as it is in his word. But we live in a culture that says, who, who are you to judge? Only Jesus can judge. Okay, I'm fast forwarding, giving you a preview of what Jesus is going to say when he stands on judgment. Like it's in the book, read the book. He's going to tell you what he's going to say. And what he's going to say is guilty, guilty, guilty. All are guilty. Your hands are dirty. Come to me and be washed. Come to me and believe. Come to me and repent. Come to me and turn. Come to me and be changed. That's what Jesus is saying in the gospel. But in order for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And nobody wants to hear bad news, do they? Don't tell me how bad I am, pastor. I don't go there. I just get all beat up on how bad I am. You know, that's my job. So that you'll understand your predicament under God so that you would repent and you would turn and you would believe and be changed and be saved and be regenerate and be washed. You get the picture, right? It's the same thing that Paul does as he writes. Uh, like in 1 Corinthians is a great place where Paul does this. In 1 Corinthians chapter six, Paul writes, and Paul says, um, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, e nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What's Paul doing there? He's saying, hey, these things, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, sexual immorality, swindling, trying to steal from people, take advantage of people, all of those things are sinful and they are wrong. And you stand under God's just judgment for those actions. That's the bad news. That's just who you are. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is your lifestyle. If this is what you're living in, you will not go to heaven. You will spend eternity in hell under God's just wrath for your sin. But then he stops and he says in verse 11, and such 
were. Woo. Oh my gosh. Has there ever been a more beautiful word than that word were in all of the world and such were some of you. That's the good news. This is who you were, but what happened? Look, you were justified in the name of Jesus. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel message. You gotta be told who you were before you can be told who you can be in Christ. People don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. Bristle against that. Don't tell me that even today. No, I'm telling you that because I love you. I'm telling that so you can come and you can believe in Jesus. Receive his identity. Be saved and be changed. Now quickly, let's think about for our final moments here. How do we then, this is the truth. They oppose, they oppose God. They oppose the father. They oppose the son. They oppose us because we're no longer part of the world. They oppose the gospel that we preach and the gospel that we proclaim. Then how do we, in light of all that, in light of all that opposition, how do we persevere in it? That the persecution of the church is a real thing. There's an estimated that today over 100 million Christians, let that sink in. 100 million of our brothers and sisters suffer under persecution. Historically, we as Christians, we will, were persecuted by the, the Jews. I mean, if you, Jesus says these words and then just go through the, books of, the book of Acts. So Acts is what happens just days after Jesus's. In fact, it picks up with Jesus's right after his resurrection and picks up and talks about his ascension. And then you see what happens in the church past that. And what we see happening is like, Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. 3,000 people are saved. Then Peter and John go to a tem temple. They miraculously, they perform a miracle and a man's healed. And then they get called in and they get warned, don't, don't preach the name of Jesus. And they get beat. Then they get arrested, move over. And you find Stephen, the first martyr to give his life, gives his blood as a Christian. And then it opens up uh, Christians just being persecuted and beat up. And then you get to the life of Paul. Paul was the one persecuting. God saves him. He comes from the chief persecutor to the chief persecuted, right? Poor Paul. But that's what happens to Paul. And then you see Paul throughout the scriptures and then it picks, on, it picks up from there into church history where they're persecuted by the Jews. They're persecuted by Romans, multiple Roman emperors. Horrific things were done to Christians, fed to lions. Suits of, of, of animal skin sewn up and fed to animals, dipped in beeswax and put into Nero's garden and lit on fire. Persecuted under pagans in Ephesus and Thessalonica, we see that. True Christianity would then suffer under an apostate, unregenerate form of Christianity called the Holy Roman Church. Then Reformation will break out and they still will be suffered and persecuted. How did you and I, how did we get here to America? Christians fleeing persecution. Fast forward further and we see that Christians will be suffer. They will suffer and be persecuted under the Nazis, under the communists in both Russia and even today in China. And today still it's in communist China and in Muslim countries all over Asia and Africa, especially. And none of this should take us by surprise. If we are walking with Jesus and the world comes against us, persecution comes. And we should not be surprised and we should not be deterred. In fact, if we see in verse number 25, it's part of God's sovereign plan. 
just as it was with Jesus. It was part of Jesus's sovereign, part of God's sovereign plan that Jesus would be persecuted, that Jesus would suffer. In fact, Jesus picks up on this and he says, he quotes a Psalm, a Psalm of David and says, it must be fulfilled. That's verse 25, it must be fulfilled. They hate me with a, without a cause. And he says that there to remind them that God's anointed messengers have always and oftentimes, I guess I should say, been rejected by the world. And that Christ as the ultimate messenger from God will also be rejected. He will be the one who will die for our sins of the world. How do we persevere? Well, just two ways. Context is everything. But number one, we persevere as we abide in him. I know that wasn't implicit in the section of text that I read to you today. But nevertheless, it's there. It's the context. All throughout John 15, Jesus has said time and time again, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. And we will persevere even in opposition as we abide in Jesus, as we are secure in Jesus. Jesus says another, he says another way, by abiding in my love. And we will, we will abide as we abide in him, as we abide in his power, as we are secure in his plan. So we understand that he has promised this, but he's also promised the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Even in the text that I did read, there's two promises that happen in that text and they almost cancel each other out. There's the promise of persecution. And then in verse 26, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, as it proceeds from the Father. We persevere in midst of suffering, in midst of trials, in midst of persecution, in midst of all sorts of opposition. We suffer, I mean, we persevere. How do we do that? We suffer as we abide in Christ and we stay vitally connected to Christ. And we've talked about that. So we understand we're not on our own, but Jesus, he sends us and gives us a spirit. Number one, as we abide in him and abide in his love. And number two, as we love one another, we persevere. We persevere as we love one another. See, this whole part of hated is, is in there when Jesus is talking about love, 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 love. God loves you, Jesus loves you, love God, obey God, follow God. And then he calls us to love one another. And then after that, right on the heels of that, in fact, you see it in your text of scripture, John 15, verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another if the world hates you. Like I know in your Bibles, in our English Bibles, there's a gap there, but it's one thought. Love one another if the world hates you. What you have to understand is that for most places in the world, Loving one another is not an option because it's all they have. That's all they have. Their families have rejected them. Their spouses have left them. They've, they've been cast out from their, from their social structures of life. And what do they have left? Well, they have one another left, right? Now, I know it's true. Last week, as we talked about and preached on loving one another, that most of you, you, you devised a list of the reasons why it's hard for you to love Christians. Christians are oddballs and Christians are weird. Amen, right? And, Christian, and this person's hard to love and this person's hard to love because of that. And that person does this, and this person does that, that gets on my nerves. But if you think about those, how trivial all of those reasons were. I think the reason why we find it so hard to love is because there's so many other places where we can go and find community and find friendship. But in the persecuted church, this is all you got. Meetings like this and smaller group meetings. One of my dear friends, he's come two times to our, one time to our gathering when we were still across town. And then he came and spoke at a, 
at, at a, an event that got snowed out that we had here on how to preach the gospel. But I have a dear friend that spent 10 years of his life with his family as missionaries in China. And when Shane talks about participating in the underground church, it looks so different than our church. And one of the things Shane says is, Andy, the community in that church is so sweet. They just always together, loving on each other, cooking meals together. In China, they all have these little bitty homes. He goes, man, we got these, they have these jokers just tamped into these rooms where they're opening up the Bible and they're reading the Bible, studying the scriptures. Shane, come tell us about the Bible. Come tell us more. Shane said he went one time and he, he, he gave a class and he taught for like three hours. This joker taught. And he said, these little, these little guys were sitting and he goes, we didn't want to make a big ruckus for people to know where we were. And so they're like sitting in these little bitty stools. And he goes, dude, I taught for three hours. And at the end of it, I go, I know you guys are exhausted. I'm going to finish. And they go, no, 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 Shane, don't stop. You got to leave. Give us more. Tell us more. Tell us more. Tell us more. And the community there is so sweet. We love each other because the truth is, this is all we have. We're truly living the Christian life and loving Jesus and walking in Jesus. This is all we have, is in our brothers and our sisters. My prayer for us as a church is that we would persevere, that we would stay true, that we will stay true even whenever our government produces some organized state church and tells us to believe in that. It's nothing more than Nebuchadnezzar. It's nothing more than the communist church in China that we would not bend a knee. We would not bow down to that. We would raise our children to know the gospel, to believe the gospel, to believe truth so they would recognize what's of this, what's of this word, of this cosmos, and what's of this world, this earth. That's my prayer for us as a church. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak truth to us. Thank you for giving this to us, Lord. May we love you dearly. As we come this morning and as we remember the gospel that we believe, the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that you have given to us, the truths of it, may we believe just as what we read in 1 Corinthians 6, that it, this is who we were, but it's no longer who we are. May we find freedom in that. We may find freedom in the transformation that you have made and the fact that you have justified us and washed us and regenerated us and made us new. We're thankful for the new life that you've given us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.